Now, you might be disappointed today. I'm not bringing a traditional Thanksgiving uh, kind of a message. We're going to continue today in our series of messages about uh, 1 Corinthians. And I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in this series that we've entitled Dear Paul. And today we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 17. This is the eighth message in this series. Eight messages and we're still in chapter 3. And it could have been 15 or 20 messages from the first three chapters. But I hope that you'll open your heart today and ask God to speak to you uh, through his word this morning. There's some things that we want you to hear, some things we want you to know, especially as it relates to God's church and the working uh, of God's church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each, each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on, it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let's pray together. Father, I ask today that as we turn to your word and we continue in this series of messages today that you'll continue to allow us to learn what Paul was writing back to these Corinthian believers. Lord, he received a letter from them that had questions in it. He had heard reports of other things that were going on in the Corinthian church. And under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he sits down and he pens this letter and he answers those questions and he addresses those specific issues that have been brought to his attention. And today, Lord, we're talking about another one of those issues. He says, did you not know? He's talking about one of those specific issues. And I pray, oh God, today that you will help us to see the truth from your word. Lord, our hearts are filled with thanksgiving. We're overflowed with thanksgiving for all of your goodness and your greatness and Lord, we turn now to your word and we ask you to speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You are probably a lot like me in the respect that I'm a visual kind of a person. Uh, if I have to sit down and look at pictures of something or read a whole lot of words about something, I'd much rather see the pictures than I had the words. I remember when we were building this building a little over 20 years ago, we were sitting in meeting after meeting, and we're talking about all these details and where this needed to go and why we needed this and how this would be accomplished and how it would fit in this piece of property and where the parking lots would go and all the words. And it was all important. It was all necessary to be able to get an understanding and an idea of, of how this building was going to function. But it was so nice when he, the architect brought to me a rough drawing of what we had been talking about. 
And then he moved from a rough drawing to a blueprint, multi-paged blueprint of that building. And then from that came a watercolor drawing of the building so that you could see how it would look. And if you were doing that today, you know, 23 years later, you were doing that today, they'd probably do a, a, a graphic on a computer where you could actually walk in the front doors and you could go down the aisle of the auditorium and into the classrooms. There's just something about being able to see something with your eye, at least for me, that I like so much better than just being able to read words on a page. I'm grateful that the scripture is filled with those kinds of pictures for us. Not that there's no, there's no uh, digital pictures in your Bible. There's no selfies of you and Jesus together. But Jesus spoke frequently using illustrations from nature around him, from people's lives around him that drew in our minds pictures of what he was trying to say. And the Bible is filled with illustrations. It's filled with word pictures so that when you're looking at those word pictures, you begin to form an image in your mind and you can see it, maybe not with your physical eyes, but you're able to see it in your mind's eye of what Jesus is talking about. For instance, when you come to talk about the church, there are several word pictures that God gives us in the scripture about his church. Uh, there is the word picture that's in Ephesians, where it talks about uh, we are the bride of Christ. He is the husband. We are his bride. And we are being purified every single day, and we are being prepared for that day when he will come for his bride, and he will take us away from this world and lead us to that place that he has prepared for us. And won't that be a glorious day when that happens? But you can see in your mind's eye as he describes that picture, that word picture of what he's saying about the church. We are the bride of Christ. There, there's another picture that's found here in 1 Corinthians. It's the picture of a body. And we are all a part of the body of Christ. He is the head. He gives all the signals. He makes all the, gives all the directions. He is the one who tells us what to do. But we are the body, and there are all different parts of the body. We're all necessary to one another, and we all work together, hopefully, in unison with each other because we need one another because we are the body of Christ. That's a, that's a word picture. He's drawing for you something that you can see in your mind, you can understand with your mind that helps you to visually think about what it means to be the church. Well, he's doing that as well when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he describes the church not as a bride and, and not as a body, but he describes the church as a temple. You and I together collectively are a temple unto the Lord. And he lays that out for us in these verses, these seven verses that we've read here from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And, and here's what's important that I want you to see this morning is that God cares about his church and he holds its leaders accountable. If you take nothing else away, that's the general thought you want to carry away. God cares about his church and he holds the leaders of the church accountable. And what I want us to do for the next few minutes is I want us to work through this passage, but I want us to start at the end of the passage, and I want us to work back up into the passage. So to begin, we look down into verses 16 and 17, 
And if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to write down is that God is at work, and notice the, the preposition here, in his church. God is at work in his church. You'll notice in the middle of verse 16, he says, don't you know that you're the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells where? He dwells in you. Now you see that little phrase he begins with, do you not know? That little phrase is found 10 times in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a little bit like saying, you should already know this. You should already understand this. This has already been communicated to you. Don't you know this? I mean, this is basic elementary kind of stuff. This is the kind of stuff that every believer should understand from the very beginning of his or her journey with the Lord Jesus. Don't you know? Don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And I want you to notice as you look at these two verses, 16 and 17, that all of the verbs... And all of the pronouns, though you don't see it in the English text, in the Greek text, all of the verbs and all of the pronouns are plural pronouns and verbs. In other words, he's saying to the church at Corinth, as he would be saying to our church or other churches like ours that are meeting today, you collectively as a body of believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are God's temple. I suppose that it's not really accurate, though I've said it at times, it's not really accurate to say I am the church or to say you are the church because the reality is you are not the church alone and I am not the church alone, but we collectively together are the church and there is some special sense in which God comes to us when we gather together as the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he comes to us and he indwells us in a way, yes, he indwells every believer. Uh, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians tells us every believer is the temple of the Spirit of God. But he says when you gather together as the body of believers, as the bride of Christ, as the temple of God, when you gather together in a collective way, he says in you dwells the Spirit of God. Ah, that changes the way you think about the church gatherings, doesn't it? That changes the idea of, well, I can go out in the woods and I'm the church and I can meet God and worship God out there. Well, you can meet God and you can worship God out there, but you can't be the church out there. Or I can go to the lake and I can get on my favorite boat. You can even name your boat Visitation so that you can say I'm out on Visitation. You can get on your favorite boat and you can get out in the middle of the water and you can put your hook in the water and you can fish all you wish. Not, not necessarily right now, but you can fish all you wish and you can say, I, I'm the church. Well, not really. You're not really the church out there. Out there, you're a temple of the Spirit of God. You're a child of the living God. You can worship God out there. But collectively, he says, you are, when you are all together, the body of Christ. That means your absence is important. That means your absence is felt. That means your absence is something of significance because when the body is meeting, when the church is meeting, we are the temple of God collectively. And you notice what he says? He, he says in verse 16, don't you know that you, plural, are the temple of God and that the spirit of God, where does he dwell? He dwells in you. I want you to know there's something special going on here today, whether you recognize it or not. I pray you do. 
But whether you recognize it or not, I want you to know that something special is going on here today. God is meeting with us. And God is in this place. And God's presence is here in a unique way that it is not anywhere else in the world. Because when the people of God come together, he says, you are my temple. I can't help but think of the Old Testament example that's found in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7. You remember Solomon was charged with the responsibility of building the temple, the very first temple. They'd had that movable tabernacle where God had met with his people over and over, and you fold it up and you carried it along to wherever God led them to go. And David had it in his heart to build. King David had it in his heart to build a temple for God, but God wouldn't let him build the temple because he was a man of war. And God didn't want a man of war building his temple. So David began gathering the materials and getting everything together for the building of the temple. But the task was ultimately left up to his son, Solomon. He said, Solomon, your son is going to be the one who constructs the temple. And you read about that in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, after seven years of building the temple, after seven years of building the temple, Solomon is ready now to dedicate this temple, and he begins this prayer. He begins talking to the people, and out of this conversation with the people comes this incredible prayer that he begins to pray in chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles. And he's praying to God, and he's rehearsing the things to God. And when you get to chapter 7, when he finishes his prayer, something incredible happens. It says that the glory of God filled the temple. The glory of God was so great that the priests couldn't even go into the temple to perform the functions that they would normally, they would normally perform within the temple because the glory and the presence of God was in the midst of that temple. And you know what it says? When they saw the glory of God, the people of God fell on their faces before God and they began to worship God, the one who was in their midst. Can I tell you, that's what the gathering of every church service should be like. That we collectively, who are the temple of God, are coming together and God manifesting himself in our presence in such a way that we recognize that he is here, that he is in our presence. And what is elicited from our hearts is this worship that we want to give to God where we fall on our faces. We don't come as consumers. That's a pretty, that's a pretty good song there. I'll check that one off. Eh, that wasn't my favorite one. Uh, he didn't speak to me. She didn't speak to me. He spoke to me. She spoke to me. Coming in as consumers of what are you going to do for me? But you come in to see the, pre the, the, uh, the presence of God and the glory of God in our midst. Paul says to the Corinthians, don't you know this stuff? Don't we know this stuff? that the gathering of the people of God is the church of God, wherever we may be meeting in these different bodies of believers that are meeting in various places all over the world, don't you know that when you come together, not individually, not separately, not singly, but when you come together collectively, that I come to you in a special way and you are my temple and I show my glory to you in that place? And here's what's interesting. The word temple is used here four times in verses 16 and 17. If 
you didn't, if you didn't notice the number of times, it's, it's used four times in the Greek word that's translated for temple. It doesn't refer to the temple general. Uh, there's a word that can be used in the Greek language. It refers to the whole temple grounds. You know, they had a court of the women. They had a court of the Gentiles. They had these various courts that, where the temple sort of spread out. But he doesn't use the word that speaks of the temple in general, uh, to that temple mount in general. He uses the word that speaks specifically, not even to the outer court of the temple, uh, where there were the sacrifices that were being made, where there was the laver for the washing of the hands and the feet. When he uses the word here and says the temple, he's speaking about the inner temple where the holy place is and where the holy of holy is. You remember the Holy of Holies? Remember the Ark of the Covenant and the angels that are spread over that ark, the mercy seat? And God's presence came down and filled that place and God met with his people and his people met with God? He says, you are like that when you gather together that holy of holy places. Because I'm coming to join you and I'm going to be in your midst and I'm going to be with you. In other words, the Apostle Paul comes and he says, look, you got to see the church differently. you got to treat the church differently. you got to understand that there's something specific about the church. He says, if you defile this body, if you destroy this body, you will be destroyed. Now, the word destroyed doesn't mean to exterminate or to, to annihilate. To destroy or defile, it's the same Greek word both times translated in my translation as two different words, but the word simply refers to in the lexicon to desecrate or to harm or to corrupt or to spoil. To desecrate, to harm or corrupt or to spoil. He says when you spoil my church or you desecrate my church or you harm my church or you corrupt my church, you will be harmed and corrupted. Another way to say it, so that it didn't come across overly threatening, is that when you trouble God's church, God's going to trouble you. When you trouble God's church, God's going to trouble you. In other words, what you sow is what you reap. Uh, be sure your sins will, what, find you out. That's the point he's making. Because when God's people come together for the worship of God, for the preaching of his word, for the service to one another and the ministry to, to one another, for the, for the preaching of the gospel and all the things that a church does, when they come together, God says, in a unique and special way, I am in their midst. But please, let's stop using that phrase, I'm the church and you're the church. I get it. I used it. I've, I've spoken it myself. Let's stop using it in such a general fashion. Because you're not the church alone. You're not the pastor, the deacons, the, uh, the, the ones who serve communion, the ones who do the baptisms, the one who greet people who are on mission all by yourself, all alone. That's not the church. You're not the church. The, the church is us collectively. The church is us as a body where we gather together and God says, I'm right there in you. You're the temple in which I dwell. You collectively are the temple in which I dwell. And then he says, it's a holy place. That's what he tells us. 
It's a holy place. God's temple is holy, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are? Why can't we do just everything and anything we want to do? Because God's here. Because we have to honor and respect God, because God has to be held high. Anything we do represents who he is, and we're doing it in his very presence. Do you see him today? Are you hearing him today? Will you experience him today? Will you know when you leave this place that you have been in his presence today? You say, Pastor, what are some of the ways that we can destroy or defile his church? Well, that would be a list so long that I could stand here preaching for days. So let's just keep it within the context of the passage itself, okay? What are some of the things that defile or destroy this church, this body of believers where we are the temple and God indwells us? Well, we destroy the church by division and criticism, by division and criticism. What have we learned thus far in this series of messages? What were they arguing over at this point? Now, later on, we're going to find out they're arguing about a lot of things. But what were they arguing over at this point? I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas. And then they had that one crowd that was super spiritual. I'm of Jesus. There was a sectarian spirit. There was a divisiveness amongst them. There, there was criticism. You're of Cephas? Oh, why would you want to be a part of Cephas? I want to be a part of, I want to be a part of Apollos' crowd. I want, to be a part of, I want to be a part of Paul's crowd. And there was this division that was within them. There was this criticism amongst themselves. And when we do that, we defile God's church. Do you realize that when you speak against a local body of believers that you're speaking against his temple where he dwells. When you gossip about people, none of us ever gossip, right? Okay, so I'm the only one. When you gossip about God's church, you're gossiping in a negative way about God. Do you know when you get on social media and you run down something about this church, or for that matter, another church in our community or our world, do you realize that you're speaking against God? I heard about a church that had a problem within their congregation. There were several prominent families that attended the congregation, and one of them was the family of the youth pastor of the church. And there was a conflict that arose between these families and the lead pastor over some trivial matters. Understand, over some trivial matters... And one of these prominent families began trying to force the lead pastor out so that they could install the youth pastor into his place. But the lead pastor was having nothing of it. I guess uh, after 40 years, he's as stubborn as I am. You refuse to be removed. And at that point, these offended families decided they were just going to get up and they were going to leave. That's okay. That's understandable. That happens sometimes. Sometimes separation is necessary like that. But then they began a guerrilla war. They began reminding or writing to people and bombarding them with emails and social media comments and various offensive claims against the lead pastor and against the congregation itself. They engaged in a warfare that ultimately was a warfare against God himself. And they were in serious trouble because if you trouble God's church, you're going to be troubled. It never turns out good when you trouble God's church. 
God will not look, overlook that kind of arrogance if you or I intentionally harm the body of believers because of our own personal agendas, then we undermine God's very work. And God doesn't look favorably on that. He realized that the Corinthian church argued over just about everything. <laughs> Must have been a Baptist church. They argued over food at their dinners. They argued over preferences in preachers. They argued over who baptized whom. They argued over the best spiritual gifts. They argued over church discipline issues. They argued over property issues that they couldn't settle between themselves. They just argued all the time. Do you realize that that kind of a spirit is defiling to the temple of God? We defile or destroy the church, secondly, by indifference or non-involvement. You notice in verse 10, a verse we didn't, oh, we did, we read verse 10, didn't we? Notice verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds. In other words, we have to be careful not only how we build, but the reality is there are a lot of churches that don't have anybody building at all. There's an absolute indifference. There's a non-involvement. Nobody is working to advance the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the community and in the world. They're just glad to come and sit and watch the show that's going on on the platform. And he says that's a defiling way to approach the church. I heard about a preacher that wanted to get across to his church members the impact of their lack of involvement had on that local congregation. So one Sunday morning, he brought a casket and he put it out here in front of the pulpit, out in front of the people. And he told them that the person who was in that casket was the person who was harming their church, causing their church to die. And then he began to ask the people one by one to come and file by the casket and to look in to see who it was. Well, the pastor had placed a mirror inside that casket in such a way that you couldn't see it until you got right on it. And when you were standing right next to it, you looked down and you saw the mirrored image of yourself. Because when there's non-involvement and there's indifference, you know, I can give up this and I can go there and it doesn't matter what my responsibility is and I don't want to be committed to and I'm not going to get involved in and we're not going to put our hands to the plow. We're going to let everybody else do it and we'll just cheer them on. We destroy the church by indifference or non-involvement. We destroy the church or defile the church by bad theology and methodology. That's verses 11 to 15. We're about to discuss that in greater detail, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But we destroy the church by bad theology or methodology. Do you hear what he's saying? I mean, we can destroy the church by division. We can destroy the church by indifference and non-involvement. We can destroy the church by bad theology and bad methodology. We can destroy the church probably in a hundred other ways. Paul comes and he says, look, Corinthians, don't. Don't you get this? I mean, don't you already know this? Don't you know? This is an indisputable fact. You, you should already be aware of this, that collectively, when you gather together, you are, as a body together, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you don't want to defile that temple because if you defile that temple, you will be defiled. If you trouble that church, you will be troubled in return. Why? Because this yeah, this is God's temple. 
And God's presence dwells here. Number two, if you're writing down, not only is God at work in his church, God is at work on his church. God is at work in his church. God is at work on his church. Go back with me again to verse 10, the last phrase of verse 10. He says, I have laid the foundation and another builds. Here's the word. Here's the preposition, on it. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on this foundation. If you look down to verse uh, 14, if anyone's work which, has been, which he has built on it. Or verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. On it, on it, on it, on it. In other words, God is not only, not only at work in his church through his presence, but God is at work on his church, building his church. Some of you will remember the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And you will remember the, the question that he asked of them. He, he looked at the disciples and he said, who do men say that I am? And they began listing the people. You know, they, some say you're this one and some say you're that one and some say you're this one and some say you're th that one. But then Jesus turns to the disciples directly and he says, now who do you not who do men say I am, who do you say that I am? And you remember the declaration of Peter? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says on that rock, that declaration, on that rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. Now, everybody knows that it is Jesus who is building his church. But let me ask you a question. How is he building his church? He's doing it through people like you and me. He's doing it through people just like you and me. If you look at the book of Acts, the expansion of the gospel, the planting of hundreds of churches all across that part of the world and beyond that part of the world. It was all being done through the people of God who were obeying God and following God. He was doing his work through the people. Look back at verse 9. That's the verse we haven't read. Look back at verse 9 and notice carefully the pronouns. For we, speaking of Apollos and Cephas and Paul, for we are God's fellow workers. It doesn't mean they're co-laborers with God. It means under God's authority, we are co-laborers with each other. That's our task. And what are they doing? He says, you, the church, you are God's field. You are God's building. In other words, the church in the early New Testament until this day for that matter is God building his church, but God is always building his church through his people. Amen? He's always building his church through his people. That means that every person in, his, in, in the church has a role to play. Every person in the church has a responsibility to take on. Every person in the church has something that God has taxed them, enabled them to be able to accomplish through the work of a church. But having said that, I want to be careful here. And I want you to know that this particular passage, specifically this passage, is primarily speaking to those that have roles of leadership in the church. Those that have roles of leadership. I'm talking about pastors all of our pastoral staff, including this pastor. 
I'm talking about the church staff, the larger body of the church staff. I'm talking about the deacons who are an extension of the pastor's ministry out into people's lives, caring for them and loving them and bringing uh, the help of God to them and the encouragement of God to them. But that involves everybody that's on the platform who's leading in singing or leading in the music and everybody who's a section host or who's welcoming people as they come through the doors or who's helping people to find places to park on the parking lot. And that's everybody who's holding a baby or watching the toddlers, which you should pray especially hard for them, those two- and three-year-olds watching the toddlers or working with the kindergarten through the elementary age children or those that are working in the youth ministry or those that are working in the life bridge. There's a sense in which everybody who has a role in the church is a leader in God's church. Yes, he's speaking specifically to the pastors, to the elders of the church. But I want you to notice something. I want you to know that, notice the non-specific words that are used through here. Will you just look at it? Verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and, here, here's this non-specific word, another, he's not telling you specifically who it is, another builds on it. We, we go on, he goes, it continues. He said, I've laid the foundation, another builds on it, but let each one, each one, a nonspecific designation. Uh, look at verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid. No other foundation can anyone, a nonspecific designation. Will you look at verse 12? Now, if anybody, anybody builds on this foundation, look at verse 14. If anyone's work, or verse 15, if anyone's work, do you see the non-specific designations? Yes, he's speaking specifically to those who are in leadership within the congregation, but then he's speaking to every other person. No matter what your role or what your task is, he says, I want you to give your very best to the work that you're doing. I want you to be careful about where you are building and I want you to be careful about how you are building. Where should we be building in the church? Should we be building on, on the latest psychology or the latest philosophy or uh, the latest managerial techniques or the relational good feelings or those other kinds of similar systems? Where should the church be built? The church should be built on Jesus Christ. Paul says, I came to the city of Corinth, and what did he do? We know from chapter 1, he preached Jesus. He preached the gospel. People were born into the family of God. They became a part of that local assembly of believers where God's spirit indwells. And that was the foundation. Remember the message? The, the message was the message of the cross. People laughed at him. We've talked about this. People laughed at him and people mocked him. The message of the cross, you would preach a message like that? You think that's going to do anything for people? But he knew that the power of God was in the message that he proclaimed. And he came and he laid the foundation, the foundation of Jesus. And we have to be careful that we're building on that foundation. I mean, there's everybody imaginable that wants to get us to build on every other thing. But do you realize how important the foundation is? The foundation is vitally important to any building. It determines the size. It determines the shape. It determines the strength of the superstructure. 
Everything has to reflect that foundation. If that foundation isn't right, then nothing that's built on that foundation will ever be right. And for that matter, will always be unstable. The foundation has to be right. I was reading this past week about the building in Florida, in Miami, that fell. A 13-story building killed almost 100 people. In the middle of the night, it fell. Just the whole portion of the building just collapsed. While people were sleeping in their beds, it just collapsed. And one of the theories is that the foundation had been sinking by a very few millimeters over the 40 years that the building had stood there. It had been sinking a little bit at a time until it just finally gave in and the different materials began to crumble themselves. There may have been other things involved, but there was something wrong with the foundation. We can't build on anything else or anyone else other than Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, we want the first-class music ministry. Hey, we got a first-class music ministry. We don't build on a first-class music ministry. We build on Jesus Christ. We have nice buildings. We don't build on the buildings. We build on Jesus. We can meet anywhere. We can meet anywhere. We can meet under a lean-to somewhere. But when we gather together, we are the temple of God, whether there are walls around us and a roof over us or not. We're supposed to be building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but not only building on the foundation of Jesus, not only where we should build, he tells us about how we should build. He lists six different kinds of materials. Uh, gold, silver, and precious stone, and wood, hay, and the old English word was stubble, but straw. He lists those six different kinds of materials, and the purpose of talking about the six different kinds of materials is to talk about quality. When you're doing something in the work of God, in the temple of God, whatever it is, whatever task you have, if it's holding a baby, you do it with excellence because you're doing it for God, right? Are y'all still with me? You don't do things halfway for God. You don't do things just partial for God. Say, so, well, that's the best I can do. You give God the very best you have, and when you don't have what you need, you bring others in to help you to accomplish what needs to be accomplished for the glory of God because you're building on the foundation, and what you build, the superstructure that you build on that foundation should reflect the quality of the foundation itself. Amen. What you build should reflect the quality of the foundation you build. This is not about how much you build this is about what you, uh, what you build with, what you use in the building process, and as well as how you go about it. Is my motivation right? Are my methods right? Is the manner in which I'm carrying this out in the right way? You can do, the, you can do things that will draw great crowds of people. You might even see people saved. And that becomes a, an end justifies the means kind of a thing. But God's going to hold you not just for the ends, He'll hold you accountable for the ends. God's going to hold us accountable for the means. Boy, it's awful quiet in here. He's going to hold us accountable for the means to the ends. He wants us to use things that aren't perishable. He wants us to use things that are imperishable. Gold, silver, and precious stone. That's excellence. Wood, hay, and stubble. It's gone in a moment takes no time. The quality of what we do within the church of God, within the gathering of believers, has got to be the best that we can possibly give God. It needs to be things that are long-lasting and things that aren't temporal or flammable. 
It needs to be in keeping with the quality of the foundation. In April of 2015, an earthquake struck Kathmandu in Nepal. There were 8,675 people that were killed and nearly 22,000 others who were injured. It was the most significant quake in that region of the world since the devastating quake of 1934 that killed approximately 12,000 people. You know what killed most of the people in 2015? It was the falling of the buildings, the poorly designed and constructed buildings that had collapsed. Because of their exploding population there in Nepal, they rushed to build housing in those urban environments so that everybody would have a place to live. But due to limited funding, they often used substandard building materials and substandard practices. And that combined to produce the devastating results. As a matter of fact, the study shows that three quarters of the people who die in an earthquake die from a falling building, a collapsing building. We should be building with materials that won't collapse. We should be building with materials that are eternal. We should be building with materials that are excellent in character. We should be building with things that come from the right motivation and are done in the right manner that display the respect that we have for the foundation on which we're building. Because one day, in verses 11 to 15, one day there's going to be an inspection process. And you're going to stand before God. All of us who are working in the church, we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for those works. If they endure the test, if they endure the inspection, you get rewarded. If they don't endure the inspection, what happens? He says you suffer loss. You don't lose your soul. This is not about your eternal destiny. This is about rewards for your works. He says you suffer loss. You may have thought, man, I'm doing so much for Jesus, but you didn't have the right motivation. You weren't doing it in the right manner. The method you were using wasn't the right method. You weren't using the right materials in what was being accomplished. You were just going at it because it got the job done and it made people happy when you did it and everybody was satisfied in the end, but it didn't reflect the great quality of the foundation on which you were building. And you stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and he tests all of those things. And only the things that were done with that kind of excellence does God reward. So don't just look at the pastors and say, okay, pastor, are you ready for that? No, to be honest with you, that makes my knees tremble. Staff, God's speaking to you. Music team, musicians, technicians in the media ministry, all of you that work across the ministry, in whatever category it is, we are fellow laborers together under the authority of God and we are working in the temple of God and God is using us to build his church by reaching people and discipling people and grounding people in the faith and teaching them the word of God. He's using us, but we must do it in the right way so that it's rewarded. I was reading recently about different places that had failed in inspection there was an, a fast food restaurant in Atlanta, my home city, that made a 58 on a health inspection. Don't think I'm going to be eating there. 
There was a metro train in San Francisco that was shut down for various violations. There was a bridge outside Pensacola, Florida. I think I've been on this one. That they, that they closed due to its unsafe condition. There was a fraternity house at the University of Illinois that failed a health, a health inspection. And there was a Red Robin. That's a hamburger kind of a restaurant. A Red Robin in Jacksonville, Florida that failed inspection after being open for only four months. Think about that for a moment. And if that didn't get you thinking, the article went on to talk about the Department of Homeland Security and a report from an undercover investigation that they did in our airports, and it showed that the TSA had failed to detect knives and guns and explosives at a nearly 80% failure rate. Now, as scary as those things sound to us, I mean, to eat in a dirty restaurant or to ride an unsafe train or to drive over a dilapidated bridge or to ride on a plane with a bomb. Here's something that should make it, that should make it even more sobering for us. One day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ at the final inspection. And that final inspection is going to show the quality of the work and the labor. I didn't take time to show you this, but... The, the work of God is it's work. So I want to breeze in and breeze out. The work of God, the work of the church is work. At the end of verse 8, he calls it labor. A couple of times, two or three times in the verses that we're looking at, 11 to 15, he calls it work. If his work, if his work, if his work, it's work. I just want to, I want to show up and I don't want to have to do anything. I don't want to have to touch anything. I don't want to have to see anybody. I don't want to have to talk to anybody. I just want to be able to sit down and be able to have life and nobody has say, say anything to me and I can leave before the invitation even finishes. There's a final inspection day and God's going to test the quality of our work and the quality of our labors as to how we advanced the gospel and how we did the will of God through his church. And number three, and finally, God is not only at work in his church, and God is at work on his church through us, God is at work through his church. I want you to think about all the good things that, that churches do. When I say churches, I don't mean buildings and properties. I'm talking about people, bodies of believers like this. Think about all the things that churches do. All the news likes to report on are the negatives. There's immorality at that church. That pastor abused the child. Uh, this youth pastor did this, that, and the other. That church had a big split, and the congregation can't afford the buildings, and now they're selling out to this, that, or the other. That's all the, that's all the news ever likes to speak about, but I got, new, I got good news for you. The church of Jesus Christ is alive and well, and they're doing just fine, thank you. And they're doing a lot of good things in the world in which we live. Think, think about the hospitals that have been built in the name of Jesus. Think about the hospices where people are being cared for as they're moving toward those final days, those final moments of life. Think about the feeding of the hungry, those who are going without food and desperately need some food to be able to sustain life. Think about helping the churches that are helping the marginalized or caring for the orphans or, or sending the gospel to places it will never go if we don't send it. And on and on, lists like that can go. Think about think about the man or the woman who's here today and his or her spouse has gone to heaven. And they came today to be encouraged 
to be loved, to be a part of a body of people. And they're sitting right there with you. They're fixing to face a holiday, and that holiday is going to be different than any holiday before it. And the church today is ministering to that man or to that woman. Or think about that lady who comes to us and she's a single mother, or for that matter, that father who comes to us and is a single father. And all they need is somebody to encourage them and somebody to love them and somebody to guide them and somebody to teach them the word of God. And they've come with us and they're sitting, they're sitting next to you. They're sitting in your section. And God is looking for you to reach out with kindness and love. Think about those whose lives have been broken by sin addicted to drugs and addicted to alcohol and addicted to sex and addicted to all these other evil things. And they met Jesus Christ and they're getting started in their, their, their new spiritual journey and they're just beginning to move along the path of spiritual growth and they're sitting with you today. And they just need the instruction of the word of God and they need the love of the people of God and they need the encouragement of a life group and they need the, the kind of things that, that we can provide. Think of the couple who's sitting in our midst, who's struggling in their marriage and they're coming and they're looking around at the couples around them. And they're saying, I wish my marriage could be like his or I wish my marriage could be like hers. I'd like for us to love each other the way they love each other. And they're watching you and they're learning from you how to have a marriage like God wants them to have. And folks, we can go on talking like that. As a matter of fact, I want to finish up here quickly, but I want to finish up with something that was written by a college student. All you college students in the room, listen to me. All you that are graduating at the end of this year, going to college next year, listen, this is not me. I didn't write this. this is, these are the words of a college student. I can't read everything she writes, but I want you to listen this is what she writes in the local church. We don't have a man-made institution, but a people gathered in Jesus' name, possessing the promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. She continues, Jesus didn't guarantee his followers the everlasting reign of the high school or college parachurch group, the campus ministry, or summer camp retreat centers, although she says, I praise God for these ultimately. She says, ultimately, the Lord didn't promise these would last forever. What he sustains week after week, year after year, year is the transcendental fellowship and worship of the saints in the, in the church body. Every Sunday, we're comforted and spiritually fed by the means of grace and the gathering of believers, a glimpse of eternity with Christians. And then she closes a little bit later by saying, if I could speak at any baccalaureate service and address my generation, I would provide what I deem to be the most underrated, life-transforming, soul-flourishing, biblically-rooted advice I have. Show up to your local church every Sunday. Ask your pastor about simple ways to serve. Introduce yourself to an older member and glean his or her wisdom and then joyfully greet those wide-eyed college students who desire the same authentic community. And when I read it, I just about jumped through the ceiling. She gets it. She gets it. And I got news for you. 
There's a whole generation of her kind that are coming behind us that get it. They get it. The church is not ancillary. It's not secondary. No, no, no. The church is the temple of God. When we gather together as the body of believers, we are the temple of God, and he is in our midst. I have to close, I have to close with these words of conclusion. Number one, remember that the church belongs to Christ, not to us. This is not my church. This is not your church. Whose church is this? This is Christ's church. Number two, interconnect with others to help the work of the church. Lock arms with other people and say, let's go to work. Let's not have any help wanted signs on the front of our building, right? Number three, look for ways to build fellow laborers up in the work. I don't know if you've noticed this, but especially with social media, there's plenty of people tearing us down. When we get together as the body of believers and when we leave as the body of believers, we ought to be building each other up. Let's not join our voices with the crowd of others that are tearing the church down. Let me close with this story. There's a funny and true story about a little boy's, a little kid's football team. This one little boy wanted to get in the game so bad I mean, it was pretty obvious when you just looked at him that he wasn't going to be a good player. He was too scrawny. The uniform didn't fit him. The pads didn't fit him. But he kept badgering the coach. He said, coach, coach, please let me in. Please, coach, I, I know I can do it. Please give me an opportunity, coach. Please let me in the game. Let me in the game, coach. I know that I can do a good job. Let me in the game. And finally, the coach had had enough. He turned around, he looked at the kid, and he said, Son, leave me alone. I'm not your coach. Your team is on the other side of the field. <laughs> he said, What are you telling me, preacher? Until you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you're on the other side of the field. Until you become a believer in Jesus, you're not even on the right team yet. You're not even on the right sidelines yet. You've got to come to Jesus, and you've got to trust the Lord Jesus to be your personal Savior.